0: In 1628, the Batavia, a flagship Dutch indiaman, left the port of Texel in the Netherlands bound for the Dutch capital in the East Indies, filled to the upper decks with gold, silver, gems and jewellery, along with a crew made up of a host of down-and-out soldiers, sailors and officers. Life in the Dutch East India Company was notoriously hard, but the crew aboard the Batavia were in for a special kind of torture when the ship was wrecked off the western coast of Australia, leading to several months of indescribable bloodshed and violence at the hands of an especially twisted commander. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories Season 5 Episode 11, I'm Ben, I hope this episode finds you in great health. Before this episode starts, I just want to give a quick shout out to Taylor, who picked up a book for me from my Amazon Dark Histories wishlist. It came through as I was almost finishing this episode, funnily enough. But there was one piece of information that I, I, had, I didn't have and I was curious about, but I had no idea. And it was in this book and I managed to get it into this episode. So yeah perfect timing thank you very much for you know supporting the podcast in that in that way and everyone that does because um having those books is is such an amazing reference for me so yeah thank you very much for that i also want to say that there's going to be the patreon t-shirt prize draw at the end of this episode uh for june so yeah uh do hang around for that if you're a if you are a patron because um yeah I'll, I'll, i'll i'll be letting you know who won that at the end of this episode. So, without further ado, let's crack on. This is the disturbing kingdom of Batavia's graveyard. In the mid-16th century, the Netherlands was a country in a tormented position. Around it, Europe was busy pulling itself apart via the wars of religion as the Protestant Reformation sought to disrupt the religious and political order. Numerous radical groups fueled revolts whilst leaders of various countries looked to further their territorial ambitions and utilised the instability in their favour. As part of the Spanish territories, the Netherlands consisted of a cluster of rich cities with substantial power in the region. After Charles, who had consolidated the independent states in the region under his rule as the United Netherlands in 1549, passed the throne over to his son, Philip II of Spain, in 1556, the country steadily grew to resent their foreign masters, whose new leader was far less sympathetic to their situation. Growing tired of the new regime that turned its hand to waging war against the Protestant population and levying high taxes upon them, William of Orange led an organised revolt in a war that concluded with independence from Spain, declared in 1581. At the time, the Portuguese and the Spanish held a solid duopoly on almost all foreign trade of spices and textiles that came from the East. Pepper, cinnamon, cloves and nutmeg were a huge source of wealth and were becoming increasingly expensive as English privateers made the Spanish voyages increasingly dangerous. Armed with the increasing knowledge obtained by spies and turncoats who had served on Portuguese vessels, and at trading posts concerning the lucrative trade routes to the east, Dutch companies began slowly forming and striking out in pioneering fashion to finance trade expeditions designed to actively compete with the established Portuguese and Spanish. The ships in the state-backed fleets were designed for trade but were also heavily armed in order to compete with blows should the need arise, which it often did. After a slow start, by 1601, The Dutch commanded 14 fleets in the east, and their presence in the region had grown to overshadow the Portuguese. With each fleet operated by individual competing companies, prices of goods in the trade ports were driven higher and higher, until it became plainly apparent that it would be far more beneficial to the Dutch interests if, rather than fight each other for the goods available, they joined forces and cooperated to bring the prices back down. On the 20th of March 1602, the companies came together and the United East India Company, or the VOC, was founded and granted a 21-year renewable monopoly on all trade to the east. In 1610, the VOC attempted to establish its first fortified base in the east, in the harbour city of Jakarta, on the Javanese side of the Sunda Strait, in order to facilitate a more direct opposition to the Portuguese and British operations in the region. After a tumultuous start, it took firm control of the city in 1613 and the VOC had its command centre, renaming it Batavia, the old Roman name to the Netherlands. The VOC then turned its attention to turning the highest possible profit whilst excluding any and all potential competitors from threatening its blossoming monopoly, which quickly extended to include spices, textiles, gold and importantly, silver, the main trading currency amongst the outposts. The VOC levied inter-Asian trade to its advantage and expanded to control the vast majority of the spice and textile trade in Indonesia, spices and gemstones in Ceylon, tea, silks, sugar and porcelain in China, and monopolised silver and lacquer trade with a notoriously isolationist Japan. Requiring a peculiar mix of merchant trade and military nows, life within the VOC was tough, and the adage no man would go to sea if he had wit enough to have himself thrown in jail was well understood by the old hands. Crews were colourful, manned equally by merchants, sailors and soldiers from across the United States, often with very different social, religious and political backgrounds. The decks of trade ships were often volatile places. Speaking later, a passenger of the Batavia said of the crew, The sailors on board Indiamen, cursing, swearing, whoring, debauchery and murder are mere trifles. There is always something brewing among these fellows, and if the officers did not crack down on them so quickly with punishments, their own lives would certainly not be safe for a moment among the unruly rabble. There was sickness, disease, piracy and the danger of shipwrecks. Discipline was tough in order to control the often drunken sailors who quickly grew restless on monotonous voyages, and floggings were common. In one year, 45% of all those leaving the Netherlands aboard a VOC ship died before they had even reached the Cape of Good Hope and in the East, one in three men never returned. On top of this, honest profit was not often guaranteed and the VOC guarded their own income with great enthusiasm private trade amongst the employees was strictly out of bounds which meant, of course, that corruption thrived to the point where the company largely turned a blind eye to all but the most greedy. A career in the East was more often than not undertaken not out of desire for adventure but out of desperation and often those who did enter with their noses clean left with a profound change in moral outlook. In 1628, The Netherlands were entering a golden age. Profit was up and they were a globally dominant force for trade. That year, the company launched a new flagship named the Batavia after its first fortress. With a length of 168 feet and able to carry a cargo of 650 tons, it sailed from Texel in the northern region of the Netherlands on the 27th of October bound for the east where it would conduct trade worth several times its 100,000 guilder construction cost. At least, that was the plan. But in a world as volatile as the VOC, things didn't always stick quite to the script. By the 16th century, the Dutch had become the foremost shipbuilders of Northern Europe, both for their own use and for exporting to other countries such as Sweden, France, Russia and Denmark. With little lumber of their own, almost all of the timber required was imported, including oak from Germany and fir and pines from Norway. The dominance of shipbuilding was in no small part thanks to the invention of the wind-driven sawmill, which reduced the time taken to repair the needed timber by many thousands of times. With the industrial scale of the sawmills, an operation that before took up to four months was now completed in less than a week. As the needs of the VOC rose, the shipbuilders responded, designing and building ships that were longer, larger, and with increased cargo capacities more suited to the gruelling, long-distance journeys that they sailed to the east. Under the advice of the Dutch government, the VOC tended towards using larger ships, capable of not only trade, but of attacking Portuguese vessels and fortifications, and protecting prospective allies. The multi-purpose design culminated in the Dutch Indiamen, built specifically for the harsh routes to the Indies. They had both large cargo holds, essential to make long voyages as profitable as possible, and large armaments, making them as dangerous as they were at hardy. With two main decks and three masts, they were comparable to the Spanish galleons, and built almost entirely of oak. The Batavia, commissioned in 1626, was built in the Amsterdam shipyards. It housed two full decks, a lower gun deck with fourteen gun ports per side, and an upper main deck that housed the majority of the crew and less important passengers. Its hull was made of oak planks, sheathed in pine to protect it from marine organisms and the rigours of long-distance ocean travel. It carried two smaller ships, a yawl and a larger longship, capable of carrying about sixty men. Within its cargo hold, The treasures it carried in preparation for trade and for delivery to Batavia included 13 chests of silver coins, as well as antiquities bound for sale to an Indian mogul. Finished in pea green, red and gold, and with a figurehead of a springing lion, as it sat in the port awaiting its 320 crew and passengers towards the end of 1628, it cut a grand image on the skyline. As one of the flagships of the company, Its crew were no stranger to the East, and the VOC employed three men with a reasonably long service history to undertake the job. At the top of the chain of command sat the upper merchant, Francisco Pelsart. Pelsart was around 30 years old. An educated merchant, born in Antwerp, he was the son of Catholic parents and had lied and concealed his religious background in order to gain employment, as the VOC only employed Protestants as officers. His father had died when he was only 5 years old and his mother had abandoned him, leaving him to be raised by his grandfather after she had met another man. Following the death of his grandfather, he had little prospects and no ties, so with few other routes to turn to, he signed on to the VOC as an assistant and worked his way up through the merchant ranks. By 1624, he was promoted to upper merchant and dealt mainly in cloth and indico, whilst using the company's bank balance to act as a private moneylender earning himself a fine profit in the process. The under merchant, who sat directly below the upper merchant in the chain of command, was a man named Geronimus Cornelis, a bankrupt pharmacist of around 30 years of age. In 1623, he had joined the pharmacist Guild and worked an apprenticeship in order to open his own apothecary. At the time, the role of an apothecary was an important one and with a social status below that of doctor, but above that of a surgeon, and it promised a good income. For Cornelis, however, it wasn't to be. He married shortly after his introduction to the Guild, and went on to have a baby with his wife, but due to complications of birth, their newborn son had to be placed in the care of a wet nurse. The midwife that they had employed had failed to remove all of the afterbirth from his wife's womb, and it quickly became infected, leaving her too sick to care for the child herself. Within months the baby died of syphilis. It was a stinging blow for a family attempting to get a business off the ground as the stigma against syphilis was such that both he and his wife would have been held under the suspicion of having been unfaithful by the local community along with the concern that the apothecary was a contagious plague nest. In danger of becoming a social pariah, Cornelis attempted to deflect the blame onto the wet nurse but whether or not it was successful is unknown. With the social and business life in tatters, Cornelis did even less to ingratiate himself with the authorities, having made friends with a group of Anabaptist rebels and political three thinkers, one of whom was a well-known artist who said he created his artwork by placing the tools on the floor and channeling energy into them from another world. Riddled with debt and in danger of being seized as a heretic, he took to a life at sea with the VOC. The final rank of command aboard the Batavia was the captain, who, despite having command of the ship, was nevertheless at the ultimate command of the upper merchant, who had final say on every decision both in port, where the captain had no power at all, and out at sea, where they had little knowledge or experience of sailing. The captain of the Batavia was Ariane Jacobs, a long-term employee of the VOC, a lecherous drunk who had worked under Pelsart before and hated him with a passion. The pair had crossed paths in an earlier expedition and Pelsar had had Jacobs publicly reprimanded after he drunkenly insulted him one night in port in front of a group of merchants. The other 330 or so passengers were made up of sailors, merchants, soldiers and 25 women, an unusually high number for a single ship since the VOC had earlier observed the dangers of having too many women aboard a ship full of unruly soldiers and sailors with little morality and all too much time on their hands. The passenger list also included two high-ranking VIPs, Giesbert Bastiens, a Calvinist minister sailing towards a new life in the Indies with his wife, seven children and housemaid, and Lucretia Hans, the daughter of a wealthy merchant whose beauty was well-known throughout the region and was boarding the ship in order to reunite with her husband, a sergeant in the VOC in the port of Batavia. On the 28th of October 1628, the Batavia left Texel, bound for Batavia, which they aimed to reach by the summer of 1629. The standard route would be to sail the eastern passage, close to 15,000 miles, south through the channel along the western coast of Europe, south around Africa, and then straight on towards the yet-to-be-settled western coast of Australia, where they would then turn north and head straight to Batavia. Almost immediately, the voyage was tossed into trouble, as it was delayed from the outset, losing its place in the fleet's convoy. Being delayed a day would not have been so bad had the weather the next day been fine, but it was not and the Batavia found itself tossed out to sea directly into the path of a storm, running her aground on the Valsheran sandbanks. Fortunately, they were able to wait it out for the storm to blow over and then use the tides to float off back to safety without too much damage to the hull. The first months of the journey were not the easiest. The winter weather tossed the ship through the rough seas and seasickness was rife whilst those less accustomed found their sea legs. In the storms, hatches were often shut up tight, making ventilation an uncommon luxury. In the stuffy decks, the air became heavy with the smell of stale sweat, urine and the stench of the bilges. Meals consisted of salted meats, preserved fish and rock-hard bread, but in the earliest days it was at least free from mould and insects. Just when one might get sick of the winter weather of the north, the ship would continue to head further south towards the equator and the weather would turn, instead now bleaching the ship's decks in the blazing sun and turning the lower decks into sweat-filled saunas. It was somewhere off the west coast of Africa that the under-merchant Cornelis became friends with Captain Jacobs. Educated as he was, he used his smooth-talking charm to talk his way into the good graces of many aboard the Batavia, telling stories and debating his philosophies on life over dinner at the captain's table. The pair wasted the days together talking of how they could make their riches in the East. Around December time, the Batavia seemed to fall into further difficulties as it pulled into the port of Sierra Leone in order to stock up on supplies, under the order of the upper merchant Pelsar, who, in doing so, was in direct violation of the VOC's orders that permitted ships to stop only once on the journey to the east, and only at the Cape of Good Hope. After resupplying, the journey south continued until the northern trade winds were captured sometime in March, where they would skip along to the eastern coast of South America and slingshot around the Cape of Good Hope. It was during this leg of the journey that Captain Jacobs attempted to lure the attention of Lucretia Han, albeit rather unsuccessfully. After being let down gently by the married woman, far above his own social class, he decided instead to try his luck with her maid, and was this time a little more successful. As it happened, Jacobs' interest in Lucretia was not unique, for both the upper and under merchants had also had eyes on her from the start of the journey all three men seemingly forgetting that she was already married, and in two of the three men's cases, several social stations above them. After six months at sea, the Batavia dropped anchor under the shadow of Table Mountain in April of 1629. Once more restocking supplies with fresh livestock, food and what little luxuries they could, they spent a small time at the Cape, anchored off the shore, whilst Pelsa, arranged the supplies before heading back out to sea. One evening, whilst they waited for the upper merchant to secure the trades, Captain Jacobs took it upon himself to get drunk and steal ashore on one of the Batavia's smaller boats, along with Lucretia's maid and undermerchant Cornelis. As he was fain to do, Jacobs got entirely too drunk and began imbusing those around him in the hopes of enjoying a good brawl. The following day, Pelsart was forced to reprimand him for his behaviour, scratching away at the surface of old wounds and humiliating the captain in front of his crew. Eight days after they arrived in the Cape, the Batavia set sail east, headlong towards the long second leg of their journey. It was on these long days, jaded by the sailing and of being talked down to by pompous upstarts like Pelsart, that Jacobs began airing his disagreements with his superior to Cornelis. Far from rushing off to warn the upper merchant of mutinous rumblings, however, Cornelis took a different route and actively encouraged the old captain to act on his anger-fuelled urges. Realistically, Cornelis had little to go home to and he was staring down the premise of a poor paycheck upon the conclusion of their journey to Batavia. Without serious intervention on his part, either in some form of private trade or other fiddling of the books, he would return home from the dangerous journey only a little richer than he left. There was, of course, an alternative, but he would need the captain's help if he was to succeed. A mutiny, after all, would do no good if there was no one on board to sail the ship. With Jacobs being bold enough to air his thoughts of discontent to Cornelis, the undermerchant pushed the captain to enact on his dangerous ideas. Emboldened by the support of the undermerchant, Jacobs found the motivation to begin recruiting those around him in the crew that he considered to be both trustworthy, willing and able. What the two men spoke of was an incredible gamble. If word found its way to Pelsart through the treacherous cacophony of rumour on the lower decks, they would both be punished severely enough that they would most likely be killed in the process. 200 lashes was a standard penalty, as was dumping a man overboard, a lead weight tied to his feet and a rope around his wrists. Both were enough to either tear a man to death, or shatter his bones. It was a huge risk, but both men were well aware of the riches on board in the cargo hold, and it was clearly enough of a motivator for them to cast aside their concerns. Whilst Jacob set about convincing the sailors, Cornelis did the same, smooth-talking the merchants and soldiers. Soon, their mutinous plans had penetrated every level of the ship's social hierarchy. Cornelis was no fool and he sought out several of the most influential men on board and pulled them into his plan. Very soon, those involved included the Lance Corporal and the High Botswain, making the ruling officers of the mutiny incredibly powerful indeed. In a stroke of good luck for the would-be mutineers, Upper Merchant Pelsar had fallen ill just days after the Batavia had left the Cape of Good Hope. Lying in his quarters, out of commission, their task of keeping their plans a secret was made immeasurably easier. By the time of his reappearance on deck three weeks later, the Batavia was tearing into the roaring forties, the strong westerly winds that would carry them all the way to the Indies, before they would turn north for the final leg of their journey. The fact that the upper merchant Pelsar had not had the good graces to keel over and die from his illness was a great setback for Jacobs and Cornelis, who had grown accustomed to having the run of the ship already. If they still intended to mutiny now, then they would need the backing of the entire ship. And so they hatched a plan. As with most every other man aboard the Batavia, the pair had noticed that Pelsar had too been taken by the beauty of Lucrecia hands they conspired to mask up several mutineers who were to capture her on deck one night and attack her, in turn provoking Pelsart into taking out his anger on anyone he might suspect of the action. If the crew were to find his punishments unfair, they would be primed to join in on the mutiny, and now with a seemingly good justification. It was a somewhat convoluted plan, and it tilted heavily on the estimations of Pelsart's reaction. On the evening of the 14th of May, As she left the merchant's table to return to her quarters, eight masked mutineers grabbed her, dragged her across the deck and smeared her face, legs and dress with an unholy mixture of tar and faeces, leaving her alone on the deck, disappearing into the shadows as quickly as they had sprung. In the days following, the attack was the talk of the decks and all watched on as Pelsark calmly policed the issue. Eventually, much to the chagrin of Cornelis and Jacobs, he took no action. In their plan, the pair had assumed that the upper merchant would react violently and never considered that he may employ such a degree of restraint. The fact that he hadn't reacted as they had hoped flew completely over their head. In truth, Pelsart had suspected the plot against him since he had fallen ill, and so, seeing the result of any rash action laid out before him, he acted calmly, and gave the crew no provocation at all. Cornelis and Jacobs both agreed that he was simply biding his time and that as they neared their destination, he was bound to act and so, in some sort of weird, awkward stalemate, the two men committed to watching him carefully under the heavy atmosphere of the tensions that hovered on the decks. As the Batavia ploughed on through the roaring forties, May turned to June and the final leg of the long journey drew near. One of the biggest problems with this route, however, was the lack of ability for navigators to plot longitude at sea, and this, coupled with the incredibly fast currents of the southern route, meant that knowing when to turn a ship north was as much a matter of luck as it was a matter of experience. By 1628, only about 4,000 kilometres of Australia's western coast had been loosely mapped, and the continent was known better amongst the sailors of the VOC as the Unknown Southland for ships already struggling to map their position east to west. This represented a considerable danger, of which, on the night of the 4th of June, those aboard the Batavia were about to become all too aware. It was 3am when the lookout, Hans Boscheiter, noticed that he was sure what was rippling waves and white water on the horizon. Signalling to Pelsart, the upper merchant inspected the seas ahead of them. The moonlight, he told the lookout, it can play tricks on one in the dark. No sooner had he uttered the words however, the Batavia slammed headlong into an unseen bed of coral reef, launching those standing right across the deck as the hull scraped hideously onto the ground. In the panic and confusion, Pelsar ordered for a member of the crew to sound the area around the ship and promptly discovered that they had bottomed out in an area of reef only about 12 feet deep. It was a desperate situation, Not only did this discovery spell devastating news for the Batavia's physical situation, but it meant that the ship had overshot its northerly turn by a considerable margin, and the boat was now lost. Quickly working to save the ship's hull, Pelsar ordered all weight that could be dropped into the sea to be done, leading to a flurry of activity below the main deck as 30 tonnes of cannons were pushed out into the surrounding waters. Ammunition, ropes, crates of supplies were all tossed out following the cannons in the hopes that should the tides be low, the ship could gain enough buoyancy to float off of the reef as the depth slowly returned. It was a vain hope however, and by 6am it became apparent that the tides were in fact already high. With the water continuing to recede around them, the hull of the Batavia scraped and lurched into the coral over and over, battered by the low waves and the corals that ripped into its sides. In a final throw of the dice, Pelsar ordered the main mast to be felled into the sea, saving the ship another 15 tons, though it to float listlessly in the process. As the axes cracked into the wood, the men aboard watched as the mast began to tilt, only realizing once it was too late that in the panic, calculations had been made in error, and the mast was on course to crash into the deck of the Batavia itself, rather than fall safely into the sea. With a thunderous crash, the 160-foot tall, 15-tonne mast smashed into the main deck, shattering wood, tearing the rigging and sending shards of the splintered ship flying through the air. Realising that the foul-up with the mast was the final nail in the coffin for the Batavia, Pelsart decided to ruminate upon an evacuation to the nearby islands that had been spotted on the horizon quickly selecting a small scouting crew and taking the yawl, the smaller of the two boats aboard the Batavia, he set sail on a mission to seek shelter for the passengers and crew of the wrecked ship. Three hours later, he returned. The islands were uncomfortable at best, with no sign of shelter, and they were simply rocky outcrops of coral jutting from the sea, but they were, at least, high enough for the sea line that they would not be consumed by the high tides. Organizing an evacuation was a little more difficult. The longship was lowered into the water alongside the yule as every man took it to save himself. The nightmare of the evacuation was not made any easier when shortly after their return, the sea breached the fractured hull of the Batavia, carrying off most of the supplies in the process. As the sailors attempted to keep their small ships steady alongside the Batavia, they gradually filled them with passengers, ferrying them to the nearby islands. By that night, 180 passengers had been retrieved from the wrecked ship and placed upon the rocky outcrop, along with a meagre 150 pints of water, 12 barrels of bread and 60,000 guilders worth of trade goods, mostly in precious gems, jewellery and gold, by the quest of Pelsart, whose mind remained on the profits and loss of the missions as it now stood. The VOC would not tolerate a wreck gladly, and if none of the cargo was saved, it would tolerate it even less. During the first night after the wreck, those on the rocks attempted to find some shelter and warmth from the elements, whilst those left aboard the doomed Batavia took it upon themselves to break into the officers' alcohol stores and drink themselves to oblivion on the finest wines that they had tasted since leaving their homeland behind over eight months ago. As it rapidly declined into drunken debauchery, the soldiers and sailors took to looting everything they could find, kicking the door into the officers quarters and pilfering everything they could put their hands on. Recognising the dire situation, men sat about on the deck, drunkenly tossing gold coins at one another for amusement. The next morning, Pelsart realised that it was the top priority to begin shipping the survivors over to the larger island that sat around a mile away in the hopes that it might contain a source of food, water or shelter. Though it did have a small sandy beach which was useful for landing supplies and passengers onto, the island disappointingly appeared no better in terms of their immediate survivability. Still, at least there would be more room. The rest of the day was spent trying to navigate the ships close enough to the Batavia in the high winds and ferry people back to the island by dusk the survivors were now split onto two islands, separated by one mile of water and still there were 70 men left aboard the precariously balanced wrecked ship. That night Pelsar and Jacob sat down to try and work out precisely where they were and what they should do next. After perusing what was left of their charts they found that they were several hundred miles further west than they had ever intended to be. Some 1800 miles southeast of Batavia, on an unknown chain of islands known as Houtmans Abrolus, named after a Dutch merchant that had nearly wound up grounded upon them, just like the Batavia was now 13 years prior. Pelsar agreed to survey the islands starting the next day and put together a small scouting party. Mercifully, the storm had blown out by the next morning, but the good fortune was not to last for long as Pelsart's scouting party soon returned from the northwest islands with bleak news. They had found nothing but brackish pools of rainwater and a few sea lions. Realising the situation was now desperate, Pelsart organised for the longboat to be prepared for a long journey. The next morning, himself, Jacobs and a small crew of 48 sailors set off from the island with the yule in tow, bound for Batavia where they intended to obtain a larger ship, supplies, and return for the stranded shipwrecked survivors and no doubt, as much of the cargo as they could salvage. Without as much as waving goodbye, the boats launched off over the horizon, leaving behind 200 survivors split across two islands, and a motley crew of 70 drunkards abandoned aboard a sinking ship. Pelsart wrote of the situation, It was better and more honest, to die with them if we couldn't find water than to stay alive, with deep grief of heart. Still, he didn't seem to have too much trouble sleeping, as the group sailed off on the long journey to Batavia. The archipelago of Houtman's Abrahoss sits 50 miles off the western coast of Australia. Made up of three large groups, it consists of 122 smaller islands and coral reefs. The passengers of the Batavia had found themselves seeking shelter on a pair of islands within the southernmost island group, the larger of which they had named Batavia's Graveyard. The situation, dire as it appeared, was enough for them to have chosen the bleak name already. The landscape was harsh, pounded by violent winds for almost the entire year. Outside of a brief rainy season, they were subject to blazing sun and virtually no rainfall and any rain that did come during a storm quickly found itself trickling through the coral that made up much of the ground and melting back into the sea. Batavia's graveyard was triangular in shape, 500 yards from north to south and 300 yards across at its widest point. Completely flat and featureless, it was a barren waste of rock and coral that was now home to 180 men, just over 100 of which were unskilled soldiers and sailors and two dozen low-ranking officers. The highest of which was the ship's surgeon, Franz Hans, there were also around 20 women including Lucretia Hans and around 25 children, two of which had been born aboard the Batavia. 70 men remained aboard the wreck and a further 50 sailors resided on the smallest island. In the chaos of the evacuation, around 40 had lost their lives, most of them attempting to swim from the ship and drowning in the process. In the first few days, Surgeon Hans organized a fledgling council in order to lead the survivors on Batavia's graveyard. Starvation and dehydration quickly set in as their supplies dwindled and within the first days, 10 of the survivors perished from the situation. Mercifully, a rainfall came with a storm on the fifth day, allowing them to collect enough water to continue to survive. Meanwhile, back on board the Batavia, The men enjoyed all the food and drink they could find, pillaging the officers' quarters happily. This continued for eight days, when finally the ship gave in and shattered upon the reef, casting fifty of the men straight into the depths, drowning them under the mass of splintered wood, crashing waves and rocky reef. Of the twenty that survived, one was Geronimus Cornelis, who had drifted ashore on Batavia's graveyard upon the remains of the bowsprit, Along with Cornelis, the survivors lucked out and also collected 500 gallons of water and 550 gallons of French wine that had fallen into the sea when the Batavia collapsed. The wreck was also supplying a healthy amount of driftwood, which the survivors utilised to create makeshift tents and shelters, erecting strips of sailcloth to catch any rainwater that they could. At first, they caught and ate the abundant seabirds, but after ten days, The population of these were drying up and the food situation once more began to look reasonably dire. After a few days recuperation, Cornelis was back on his feet and being the ranking officer now on the island, he was immediately elected onto the ship's council and very quickly he was placed in charge, with people falling under his charm with words and his rank on the ship originally and looking to him to make the ultimate decisions. He organised groups for hunting and shelter construction and the camp slowly began to find its bearings and limitations, gaining what little comfort that they could. The drifting flotsam from the Batavia's wreck was still tossing up small gifts and for Cornelis, one of the luckiest finds was the upper merchant's clothing, which he was granted along with the largest, most plush shelter. Things weren't completely comfortable for the new commander, however. By the second or third week of their marooning, Rumours began to circulate through the camp of the planned mutiny, and this didn't fare well for Cornelis. If Jacobs managed to sail the small longship all the way to Batavia and return with a rescue ship, he may still wind up back in front of the VOC with an allegation of mutiny hanging over his head. Unless, of course, he could carry out his mutiny aboard the rescue ship. All the diplomacy and democracy of Batavia's graveyard was bugging him too, As the fourth member of the council, he could always attempt to pull rank, but there was every chance that his suggestions could be voted down by the other three lower-ranked officers. It just wouldn't do, he thought to himself, and so his mind drifted back to mutiny once more. Taking advantage of the poor situation, he worked quickly to outpace the rumours. Before word could spread any more and people could start making their own plans against him, he recruited the original mutineers and seized control of the island, ousting the other members of the council and installing himself as the head honcho. He acted insidiously, recruiting David Savanak, a hard-nosed clerk from the ship to act as his second-in-command and strong-arm any that would seek to disobey orders. He set about ordering the construction of rafts from the driftwood that was everywhere from the shattered Batavia and perhaps most disturbingly, he began planning to reduce the numbers of survivors on the island that represented a threat to the group, both through the amount of resources they drained in terms of food and water supplies and in how they outnumbered the mutineers at a rate of around 6 to 1. Over the following days, he sent out groups of scout parties aboard makeshift rafts to check out the other islands in the archipelago. Upon learning that they were all no more hospitable than their current island, he instead told the survivors that they had found sources of food and fresh water and he organized for the group to split themselves across these other smaller islands, effectively thinning the herd on Batavia's graveyard and sending the groups out to starve with as few rations doled out as possible. An island that hosted a colony of sea lions to the north, they dubbed Seal Island, was the new home of a group of around forty men who were the first to be ferried away, and the original island, found by Pelsart, was named Traitor's Island. Now, with half the driftwood from the Batavia, it became the home of fifteen further survivors who were tasked with using this wood to make rafts. Cornelis promised them that he would send rations over to them whenever they needed it. But of course, He had absolutely no intention of doing anything of the sort. Taking charge of all the weapons, he then saw a group of 20 loyal VOC soldiers were sent to the islands in the north, as lightly equipped as possible, felling a significant threat in one swoop. Phase one of Cornelis' plan was complete. There still remained 130 survivors on the main island along with him but they posed a much less significant threat with many of the able-bodied sent away to their inevitable death through either starvation or dehydration under the guise that they were doing important reconnaissance and settlement duties for the colony. All he had to do now was further thin the numbers on the island, spring his mutiny and disband the council to ensure that he maintained his power and survived until the rescue party arrived where he could then order his men to slay the landing party and steal the ship, load up the Batavia's cargo, and run for the hills. He got to work immediately. His opportunity to disband the council came at the beginning of July, when a soldier named Abraham Hendricks was caught stealing from the store tent, sharing his spoils with a friend. Cornelis proposed that both men be put to the death for their crimes. The council agreed to condemn Hendricks but not his colluding friend, and so, the following day, Cornelis, in a faux outrage, disbanded the council, replacing them with three of his most trusted and competent mutineers. Continuing his earlier plan that was so effective, the new council declared that they would be sending small groups of men over to the other islands to help the search for water. It was a slow, systematic way to thin the herd without too much suspicion falling upon Cornelis. After all, people were still under the impression that they were being supported in the search with rations rather than just being sent to their slow and painful deaths. This time, however, Cornelis wasn't willing to let nature take its course, nor allow the numbers to grow too high on any one of the other islands. And so, once the makeshift rafts were out of sight of Patavia's graveyard, he had a group of his mutineers lay in wait and spring upon the ship, murdering them outright by tying their hands and feet and drowning them in the sea. The 9th of July threw a wrench into Cornelis' plans, which had so far passed off without a hitch, when signal fires from the northern search party of soldiers flared up, sending their smoke high into the skies, clearly visible to all on Batavia's graveyard. If they had found water, it meant that they could potentially survive, and though they had no boat, nor any real way to communicate across islands, so could largely be ignored, it would lead to awkward questions from the survivors of his own island if he responded with no action. To make matters worse, he could make out signs of movement over on Traitor's Island, and it appeared that the group there were floating their makeshift rafts out to sea and heading towards the signal fires. Cornelis ordered for a group of soldiers to man the small rowboat that the carpenters had built and head them off, The group quickly caught up with the cobbled together raft in their far superior driftwood boat. They leapt aboard and commandeered the crudely made raft. Upon realizing the mutineers were not rowing out to welcome them, several passengers leapt overboard from the raft, promptly drowning. The rest of the survivors were forced to settle down whilst both ships were sailed back to Batavia's graveyard. When they arrived, All hell broke loose and the mutineers slayed all of the surviving members of the makeshift raft in full view of the islanders. Cornelis' plans were, at last, out in the open, laid bare for all to see. Over the following days, those left on the island, realising only too late that they had no longer had any real physical power to overthrow the bloodthirsty commander, were forced to make a choice, join the mutiny and enjoy the fruits of the decision in the form of protection larger tents, and access to all the privileges afforded to the mutineers, or shut up and follow orders as a second-class citizen and hope to survive. A dozen or so chose to join the mutiny, whilst the rest looked on, suddenly aware of just how weak their hand had been made by Cornelius's careful scheming. Cornelis next turned his attention to the sick tent, why waste resources on people who were not part of the mutiny and not pulling their weight? He insisted the aid of one of his assistants, Andres DeVry, to finish them all. That night, he crept into their tents, killing all 11 patients by slitting their throats. Several days later, the same act was repeated on a further five. It was the start of what would become de facto policy. If you were to fall ill on Batavia's graveyard, then you would be cut down by one of Cornelis's men at their earliest convenience. By mid-July, they had ridded the crowded island of 50 VOC loyalists. Men, women and children had been disposed of unceremoniously and without prejudice. It was, however, just the start of Cornelis's slaughter. By now, he had learnt to order executions and murders simply to cure the boredom of the long, monotonous days, surviving on the barren rock. In a perfect example of this, Cornelis ordered a group of men to sail over to Seal's island and murder most of the group, sparing only the women. When they arrived, it turned out to be fairly fortunate timing as a small group of the survivors on this island had begun constructing rafts out of sight of Patavia's graveyard. Once ashore, the soldiers went to town killing all the men that they could, sparing only four pregnant women and the youths on the island, before returning to their home rock. Soon, the survivors numbered just 60, a far more manageable number now that they had killed and dispatched over 100, thought Cornelis. But still, it wasn't quite at the magic number of 45 that he had concocted in his original plan. Two-thirds of the remaining 15 were killed in one attack when Cornelis ordered the murder of the Bastiennes family, Gisbert Bastiens, a minister for the Dutch Reformed Church, had been well placed aboard the Batavia and on the island too. He had managed to survive the long journey and shipwreck with his family intact, himself, his wife, and all eight children, who now took up far too much space for one family, as far as Cornelis was concerned. On the 21st of July, Cornelis invited the minister, along with his eldest daughter, to dine with him under the illusion that a man of God was always useful to keep on side. Whilst the pair dined with Cornelis in his tent, a group of seven mutineers tore into the minister's tent, slaying the rest of his family with hatchets and knives, and after, tossing their bodies into a pre-dug pit. In a bloody frenzy, the group then went on to murder a further two survivors. With their sights on a third, the underbarber, Aris Jans, they lured him away from the camp and jumped him, thrusting at him with swords. Hans remarkably managed to escape the attack, running off into the night and hiding in the shallows until the mutineers gave up their searching. Quietly, he crept around to the edge of the island until he reached the commander's boats, untied one and dragged it out to sea and headed off north towards the last group of survivors. When he arrived, he found that far from starving, like Cornelis had hoped, the group had managed to find a well and were surviving on the largest two islands. Hands quickly filled them in on the dangerous situation that they were all now facing. Following the attack on the minister's family, Cornelis then put the minister himself to work. There was no time for grief, he told the broken preacher. He must work in order to survive on the island. As a man of God, he may have been expected to have been given far better treatment, but under Cornelis' rule, who harboured his own heretical philosophies, the rules of the VOC and of the church were cast aside, and the commander actively encouraged the mutineers to do the same. By August, the commander's rule was absolute. Having disposed of over 120 of the survivors in bloodthirsty fashion, the mutineers commanded a healthy power base that were no longer outnumbered. They had cast aside their old VOC ranks and organised themselves into a new system of hierarchy, with Cornelis taking the highest rank of Captain General. With this new seat of power, he had almost immediately set about romancing Lucretia Hands, writing her sonnets, inviting her to his tent to dine with him and plying her with expensive wine. Somewhere in his corrupted mind, he saw himself as the perfect suitor to the beautiful young woman she was to be his island princess. Naturally, Lucretia was not so keen on this idea. It wasn't until he'd exhausted all of his charm and wiles attempting to woo her over to his way of thinking, all to no avail, that he reluctantly gave in and decided to just rape her instead by having one of his assistants threaten her with death if she did not accept the Captain General's advances. As the days ticked by in boredom, Cornelis contented himself with sexually assaulting Lucrecia and ordering more slayings. Now far from being necessary in order to secure his mutiny would succeed and simply to kill time and release the tensions that they would build up between the equally bored soldiers accustomed to the steady stream of bloodshed. At times, Cornelis would order a murder in order to test the obedience of his followers or to satisfy his own sense of power over the survivors by now a deranged, delusional, murderous tyrant, his mind naturally spun with suspicion of the men that he had sent to the northern islands. At this point, they should all be dead. But what if? What if by some stroke of luck, they had managed to find a source of sustenance and survived? Over on the islands to the north, the men had heard the story of Batavia's graveyard from the escapee, Aris Hans, and got to work instantly. Despite Cornelius's earliest scouting missions confirming the islands had no water, they had found themselves two wells and a good source of food in the wildlife. Now they set about fashioning pikes from pieces of driftwood and spike clubs from the wood and nails that continued to wash up on the shores from the wreck. They organised themselves enough to occupy defensive positions on the island, which they fortified building square limestone bunkers and a makeshift lookout post. In total, they were 47 men strong and one young boy, but they were woefully under-equipped. They had done what they could, however, and when Cornelis came for them, they would be ready to fight. Cornelis, concerned with what was going on on the northern island and what numbers they may still have left, decided to write a letter in order to sow the seeds of suspicion within their group. Aware that the numbers were made up of VOC soldiers and sailors, he hoped to exploit and widen the divisions between the two groups that had already existed. In the letter to the commander of the soldiers, he told them that the sailors had plotted against them and that they had a compass in their possession, which they were planning to utilise in order to escape the archipelago, leaving the soldiers stranded. If the islanders would hand back the boat stolen by Ari Hans and along with it a group of the sailors, including Cornelis the Fat Trumpeteer, deaf Jan Michiel and Squinting Hendrik, then the two factions could, he assured them, remain friends. Cornelis sent the letter to the island in the hands of Daniel Cornelison, whom he had chosen as ambassador for the mission. No sooner had Cornelison stepped onto the northern shores, however, did the soldiers capture him, scoff at the letter, and lock him up in a makeshift jail. With this insidious form of treacherous diplomacy failing, Cornelis next sent a party of 20 men to attack the beach. After a minor skirmish in the shallows, both parties retreated with no casualties. With neither side keen to wade into open fighting, a tense, uneasy ceasefire hung over the archipelago, much to Cornelis' dismay and frustration. On the 2nd of September, he decided to fall back on his more comfortable, nefarious tactics. He arranged for a group to approach the island and attempt to make a parley on the beach under the guise of friendship and trade, allowing them to sow dissension and launch a treacherous surprise attack upon them at a later date. Quite why he thought the Northern Islanders would trust this offer of friendship from a gang of mutineers who had already betrayed them once is anyone's guess. But Cornelis obviously had faith in this plan as he rode out to the beach himself, flanked only by five of his most trusted assistants. His overconfidence proved to be a terrible delusion as when they stepped onto the beach, much like before, The defenders captured all of them except one, who escaped back to Batavia's graveyard. They killed the four assistants, but kept Cornelis alive, who they bound with rope and jailed in a limestone pit. The mutineers back on Batavia's graveyard now found themselves down five of their highest-ranked members, including three quarters of the entire council and the captain-general himself. They promptly elected a new leader, Walter Luce, the only member of the council left alive. After the skirmishes and failed attempt at treacherous parley, the mutineers now found themselves at a numerical disadvantage to the loyalist defenders in the north. They were also skilled. Still, Luce pressed forward, deciding to attack the island once more. This time, they would take the two muskets that they had salvaged from the wreck of the Batavia and keep the fighting at range. It may have sounded like a fairly rough plan but after several hours of fighting in this manner it had actually begun to pay off. Slowly but surely the mutineers were whittling down the defenders' numbers. At some point the fighting was bound to come to a head however and they would have to go face to face in an ultimate showdown but for now they just had to keep firing. Over the last months Whilst Cornelis had been carrying out his mutinous massacre on Batavia's graveyard, Pelsar had somehow managed to make it to Batavia. Originally, the group aboard the longboat had considered searching for a solid supply of water on the coast of what is now Australia, but with so few maps or charts and so little knowledge of the continent available, it appeared a more ridiculous plan with each passing day. Eventually, reaching the northwest coast, they headed back out to sea their own situation now far more desperate than it had been as they too were running dangerously low on fresh water and rations. 900 miles from Batavia with few supplies, an overloaded boat not made for distance travel and with almost no equipment, Jacobs set his path from the city and crossed his fingers. Remarkably however, they did make it to the Javan coast and only just in time. When they reached land, they had reduced their water store to just under two pints. On the 9th of July, Pelsart was pulled up in front of the VOC council in Batavia to explain the shipwreck. Fortunately, the council ruled in favour of sending Pelsart back to the wreck as commander of a new ship on orders to retrieve as much of the wreck's cargo and survivors as possible in order that the company may receive some recompense to balance its great loss. It was a relatively light punishment for Pelsart, but make no mistake, it was still a punishment. A second failure on his part, and he would not be afforded the same generosity. A few days later, Pelsart tossed his skipper, Jacobs, to the dogs under suspicion of mutiny, and for his part on the attack on Lucretia aboard the Batavia. Jacobs was arrested along with the high boatswain, Jan Everts. It was exactly as Cornelis had earlier feared. The VOC would most likely put the men to torture in order to find out their ultimate plans, and under such circumstances, it seemed unlikely that both men would protect him from any accusation of mutiny. On the contrary, he would probably have been named as the sole instigator. Two days later, on the 15th of July, Pelsart left Batavia aboard the Sardam and headed back to the western coast of Australia to seek the wreck and the survivors. Since the ship had been hopelessly lost at the time of its wrecking, it was not going to be the easiest task to find it again, but at least they could head in the general direction and hope for the best. It took them just over three weeks to find the general area of the wreck, but they then spent the remainder of August and the first half of September looking for their exact location. On the evening of the 16th of September, they at last spotted the northernmost island of the archipelago of Batavia's graveyard, and much to Pelsart's great surprise, there were still signs of survivors. As the ship sailed over the horizon, he saw smoke coming from Seal's Island and a boat off the northern shore speeding back towards Batavia's graveyard, and moments later, a second boat of four men rowing from the northern island towards the Sardam. No sooner did the boat reach the shores of Batavia's graveyard, did Pelsart see it put back out to sea and it too began rowing at speed towards the rescue boat. As it happened, just as the two sides had been fighting it out to the bitter end and neared their ultimate showdown, the Sardam had appeared over the horizon, sending a wave of relief through the loyalist camp and a wave of fear through the mutineers. They hightailed it back to Batavia's graveyard where Luce attempted to think of a plan of action, but before he had time to get anywhere, a group of mutineers had taken the boat and dashed out to meet the rescue ship. The race was now on between the defenders and the mutineers as to who could reach the Sardam first and talk to the rescuers into believing their side of the story. Little did either side know that Pelsar had left the archipelago with his own suspicions of Cornelis already greatly matured. The Sardam had anchored up near the shore and Pelsar had taken a boat out to the beach Now as he stood there trying to work out who it was approaching him in the nearest boat from the north, one of the men jumped out into the shallow sea of the shore and yelled to him, Welcome, welcome, but go back on board immediately. There's a party of scoundrels on the islands near the wreck, with two sloops who have the intention to seize the yacht. It was Vibe Hayes, the leader of the loyalist defenders from the north and collapsing at the feet of Pelsart, he blurted out an undoubtedly abridged form of the story of the archipelago so far. Pelsar ordered Hayes to return to him with the bound Cornelis and launched his small rowboat back out towards the Sardam in order to warn the crew of the incoming mutineers. By the time that they reached the Sardam, Pelsar had barely got on board but had made it in just enough time to aim the cannons at the rowboat. Threatening to blow the mutineers out of the water, They dropped their weapons into the sea after a brief standoff, before boarding the rescue boat unarmed, where Pelsart had them thrown into the forecastle and locked up. After months of violence and bloodshed, the mutiny had failed, and this time Pelsart was determined there would be no coming back. We learned from their own confessions and the testimony of the living persons that they had drowned murdered, and brought to death with all manner of cruelties, more than 120 persons, men, women, and children as well. The true nature of what had gone on throughout the islands in his absence became quite clear during his interrogation of Cornelis. The Captain General denied everything, attempting to deflect blame onto the dead members of the council that he himself had installed, saying that they had made him do it. Cornelis was thrown back in the forecastle and Pelsart busied himself with the salvage of the wreck of the Batavia, hoping to regain as much of the VOC's riches as he could. As they hunted Batavia's graveyard for the jewellery and gemstones, Pelsart's men uncovered Cornelis's tent and with it, several documents signed by the mutineers swearing their allegiance to Cornelis, which he had earlier insisted upon them. Over the following days, Pelsar acted out a makeshift series of trials of Batavia's graveyard where the members of the mutiny were all interrogated and tortured in order to get to the bottom of what had happened on the islands. Using a primitive form of water torture, Cornelis was tormented by Pelsar and each time confessed to everything that he had done, only to recant his confessions as soon as the torture had ended. Though it took several attempts, Pelsart's brutal interrogations eventually got the better of Cornelis, who signed a confession without the need for torture on September 28th, throwing every member of the mutiny to the dogs with him. His sentencing was swift and savage. Unable to trust him on a voyage back to Batavia, Pelsart sentenced Cornelis to death and then promptly arranged to have his hands chiselled off before being hanged from a makeshift gallows erected on Seal's Island. A further nine of the mutineers were to be taken to Batavia for interrogation, whilst 19 of the least active in the mutiny were freed temporarily. On the 1st of October, with blood dripping from his recently separated wrists, Cornelis mounted the gallows where the noose was tied around his neck. As the executioner made to heave the disgraced captain-general up by his neck in order to slowly strangle him to death, He continued to shout at the top of his lungs at the watching crowd, Revenge! Revenge! Pelsart later wrote of the execution. He could not reconcile himself to dying, nor to penitence, neither to pray to God, nor to show any face of repentance over his sins. And so, he died stubborn. Cornelis' body was left hanging from the hastily erected gallows, swinging in the wind, as the Sardam left the archipelago six weeks later, the salvage mission now complete, bound for its journey back to Batavia. The remaining 77 survivors of the wreck, happy to finally be leaving the sorry group of islands long behind them. By the time the VOC received a report back in Amsterdam, they had no time to voice their displeasure with Pelsar, for he had died within 11 months of the execution carried out on Seals Island. He had been desperately ill for some time, and he passed away in mid-September, aged only 35 years old. Following his death, the discovery of the depths of his private trade were made known to the VOC, and his reputation was left in tatters. Arion Jacobs, still sitting in a cell in Batavia under suspicion of mutiny following Pelsart's earlier accusations, never did confess to having any role in the attack on Lucretia, nor any mutiny, He remained in prison, suffering a prolonged series of torture until June of 1631, when any further records simply disappeared. There is nothing of his execution, nor any allowance of freedom, and so it seems he lived his last days in the cells of Castle Batavia. Over 330 years after the ship had hit the reef, the wreck of the Batavia was salvaged over a period of a decade during the 1960s and 70s. Remains of its hull still sit today in the shipwrecked galleries of the Western Australian Maritime Museum where its bleached and broken beams of oak sit innocently, belying the tales of horror that followed from its fateful final journey. So that was the story of the shipwreck of the Batavia, an absolutely brutal story, and this is some Advert Breaks. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert, Dr. Heath Avery. Season one relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. Thanks for listening to Dark Histories. This podcast is entirely independent and funded by myself and listener support. So, in order to do that, I need to run a few ads. Our long-time advertising partner is Audible, and the reason I've stuck with them for so long is that they offer a service that I actually use and enjoy myself. And I do think it actually offers value to people like myself who enjoy podcasts. If you're unaware of what Audible is, it's an audiobook subscription service which charges a monthly fee in return for one credit, which you are free to spend on any audiobook you like. The catalogue is huge, Multilingual and covers everything from fiction to series of lectures. They have an iOS, Android and web app, and if you use more than one, they all sync up together so that you can listen on any of your devices without having to skip about. If you ever feel like you want to take a break from the subscription, you can do so and you get to keep all your previously bought books. And when you get into a drought, you can just fire it up again and start gaining credits seamlessly. Some of my favourite books on there to date are The Complete Sherlock Holmes, which is read by Stephen Fry. And they've also got the original Exorcist book and just a huge history back catalogue. And I've really enjoyed all of those, basically. So if this sounds like something you might be interested in, head over to audible.com forward slash dark histories. And that's dark histories, all one word. And you can start a free trial that offers a monthly subscription with one free credit so that you can instantly pick an audiobook of your choice. If at the end of the trial you feel like it's not really for you, you can just cancel it and it's cost you nothing and you get to keep your free book. So once again, that's audible.com forward slash dark histories, or you can find the link in the show notes. So earlier I mentioned listener support and there are a ton of ways that you can get involved and support Dark Histories. The main way is to become a Patreon patron. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, I'm sure you're familiar by now, but for those, not so much. Patreon is a way to make a monthly pledge in return for some small perks. On the Dark Histories Patreon, I set my pledges as low as I can, really, with options for one, three and five dollars per month. And for that, you gain things like early access episodes without these horrible ads, PDF notes and resources that I may find during my research for each episode. There's also access to the live stream archives and more. So if you enjoy the show and you think it's worth it to you, hop over to darkhistories.com and you can find all the ways that you can support, including our Patreon, or just check out the links in the show notes. If none of that appeals... Then sharing it around with all your friends and family is equally as helpful and just as much appreciated. So if you're here, then thanks so much for not skipping the ads with that 30-second skip button and giving my hard sell a listen. I'll let you get back to the episode. Cheers. Welcome back. Thanks very much for listening. What an absolutely crazy story that was. I really recommend you reading if you found the story interesting at all. Um to read a book called batavia's graveyard by mike dash he's a british historian he's written loads of really cool books actually and his book on this is really interesting there's a few books on this but his one i i find i found to be the most academic the other books on it are, are equally as good i think but they they tell the story in a, a slightly more kind of storytelling way so I suppose actually you know depending on what you what your preference is um yeah if you fancy reading those books I would I, I, I mean I recommend all of them to be honest because there is so much more to this story that I couldn't fit in I mean you could make an entire podcast series probably about this wreck I definitely recommend picking up say Mike Dash's book would be my personal choice but if you fancy something a little bit more easy going there's also a book called batavia by peter Fitzsimmons, and that's really good as well but it's slightly more um sort of casual it's written in a a sort of diary form which is quite quite interesting actually um but yeah it's definitely mike dash's book is a bit drier i would say so depending on which one you fancy you know if you if you like dry i would go with mike dash's book batavia's graveyard and if you fancy a kind of more storytelling sort of format but still with all the facts and all the rest, um, I'd go with Batavia by Peter Fitzsimmons. Both great books and they both go much more into detail about everything that happened because it was such a mad story. Cornelis is a terrifying man. I would say I only skimmed the surface of what he did on Batavia's graveyard in, in this story. Like I say, like it was such a huge story that this could easily say easily be like a 10 12 part podcast series easily quite easily but yeah otherwise um I, 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 a, a really interesting story that i i actually hadn't heard of um until recently but really glad i did sort of cover it for the podcast because it was yeah really interesting one to to research this one and um Cornelis was is one of the more terrifying characters of of, of any dark histories i think probably. In his just sheer cold-blooded, murderous psychopathy, really. So I'm probably going to leave the story there. As planned and promised, uh, we've got the t-shirt drawer for monthly t-shirt draw. So the way this works, if you're a patron any tier, then you get thrown into, automatically thrown into a random draw uh, once a month. At the end of each month, I'll, I'll basically put out a random name using a a, a random number generator. And uh, if that's you, you've won a t-shirt. So this month's t-shirt winner is... Dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun! Patron number 273 in my spreadsheet, Laura Marie Speck. So congratulations, Laura. I will send you a message on Patreon and to get some details from you to get a t-shirt sent out to you. So yeah, congratulations. You're the first ever winner of the the monthly t-shirt giveaway, which is a nice little thing to do, I think. And from now on, it'll be a thing that's going to happen every month at the end of every month. So if you're an active patron, doesn't matter what tier, you'll get a chance to win a t-shirt. So hey, t-shirt for a dollar maybe. And with that little bit of ceremony over, I will leave you in peace. So thank you very much for listening. If you'd like to contact, you can do so. Um, My email is contact at darkhistories.com. You can also get in touch with me um, through social media. At the moment, uh, the Facebook messaging is is turned off. Um, If you message me on Facebook, you'll just get an automated reply. No, that that's just because um I've, I've been getting a little bit overwhelmed recently with um messages and I'm I'm getting a bit behind on on replies and things, so um that's just there like temporarily whilst I sort of climb back on top of that. But you can get in touch with me via Instagram because that sort of goes straight to my phone and I tend to just reply to that a little more casually. Um, but if you want to get in touch with me about anything that requires like a big long reply or or anything like that, um, I would. Email me, uh, contact at darkhistories.com for now. All the links for that are in the show notes. You can also just head over to darkhistories.com, which has all the links there for contact and support and the shop and all sorts. So yeah, um, that's about that. Thanks very much for listening. I will speak to you all very soon. Take care. Sleep tight.